Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning, and hello, all uh, you are on the live stream. I wish I could say good to see you, but uh, it's good to be seen, I guess. Um, so we're continuing this morning in our series on our church's core values, and uh, I want to announce <laughs> that uh, uh, next week we'll wrap that series up with a focus on prayer, and uh, we'll return to our exposition of the Gospel of John at that time, uh, but I'll just reiterate that the elders uh, thought it was uh, a valuable thing that we uh, give some focus for a season on, on, uh, on our mission, uh, our mission strategy as a church, and the things that we uh, think are really important, and that's what these core values are. For this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. Our focus is verses 1 through 3, Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3. The book of Acts is a, um, it's really the, uh, the explanation of what happens when the gospel is preached. Um, the gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us a, uh, an overview and a presentation, if you will, of, of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when that message gripped the hearts of the apostles and began to spread uh, from Jerusalem and beyond... Uh, we see uh, the book of Acts is really the, the history of how that unfolded and how Christ was preached and, and how the gospel went effectively to the ends of the earth, to the known world at that time. Well, here we are, you know, uh, parachuting in, if you will, into the, the middle of this book, uh, Acts chapter 13, 1 through 3. And I invite you to follow along in your own Bibles. If you're using the church Bible, that's 921. Hear God's word. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of, friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your living and active word. It has all authority over us, even in things it simply describes it is authoritative and it is true and you give it to us for our sanctification to make us wise to the salvation that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ and in this context to give us an understanding of the local church and the gospel imperatives. So Lord, would you uh, grant us grace now by your Holy Spirit to, to understand this word and that you would apply it to our lives and to our church. The result of this, Father, we ask that Jesus would be glorified. And Lord, it's not lost on any of us that a mere man is standing here proclaiming this. So we need something uh, beyond my words. We need your spirit to plant your living and active word in our hearts and bring about the change that you desire. So cause that to happen 
By your spirit, give us ears to hear, hearts to respond willingly and delightedly to what you have to say to us. And we pray that Jesus would be glorified in all of this. In his name, amen. Well, when you think about any uh, culture or, or movement that wants to be enduring, you have to, it, that movement has to find a way to reproduce itself. So the values that that, that uh, movement holds dear, they, they have to be propagated to, to the next generations. Um, when I'm counseling with Christian couples that are planning on, on getting married, I, I half joke with them that you know, as we get to talking about the state of the nation and, and things like that, I've, I kind of half joke with them that, that if they want to change this nation for the next generation, one way that they can do this is for all of them to get together with everybody else who shares their values and agree together just to have tons of babies. <laughs> so we saw that an example this morning, people bringing their children. Um, now, I say it half jokingly because... Uh, uh, People will decide how many children they want to have. But it's true. It's true that, that you could effectively change a nation. Now, my mission this morning isn't to, to change this nation by exhorting you to have a bunch of babies. That's not my aim, nor is it the business of the church. But, but if we think about that, what's true for families is very much a spiritual reality for the church. The cause of the gospel is a disciple-making effort that Jesus intended to multiply disciples. And we get this. The gospel did not stop with any generation. It didn't stop with the apostles, and nor should it stop with ours. The gospel is, or I should say, sorry, the church is not only to declare the gospel to this present generation and this local geography, but we're also to, we bear some responsibility for making sure the gospel goes to the next town and around the world and that it is passed to the next generation. And we get this. You and I are disciples of Jesus because Jesus' disciples and the first churches embrace the same value. And one of the thought experiments that I have in mind is, is when I get to glory, when we're all gathered around the throne of Jesus to kind of track my own chain of, of the gospel stewardship back to which apostle or which disciple in the early church. We'll probably find that out. That'll be a glorious thing. But we believe today because somebody shared and there was a church. Well, this morning, as we look at this uh, section of the book of Acts, uh, we see this, this church in Antioch uh, as an example, really. An example for us and really every other church that seeks to be obedient to Christ in the disciple-making uh, disciple mission that he has given to us. And as I already mentioned, we've been in this series on core values and we're focusing this morning on the value of multiplication. Not the math problems, but multiplying people with the gospel. I believe Antioch was a church that valued multiplication. They valued the multiplication of disciples, of leaders, and of ministries. 
So as we, as we together here at Overland Hills Church, focus on this Bible text before us, I want us to give uh, focus to three specific exhortations. So if we value the multiplication of disciples, more disciples made for Jesus, more leaders to function in the context of the local church, and more ministries, we will do these things. We will, number one, we will identify leaders. Number two, we will pray missionally. And three, we will send enthusiastically. That's really my outline for this morning. If we value multiplication, we will identify leaders, pray missionally, and send enthusiastically. First, if we value multiplication, we must identify leaders, identify leaders. And I choose that word specifically. Now, uh, I like family illustrations, so I'll give you one. With my grandson, I'm really enjoying uh, everything about how he is learning and growing. Now, our daughter Haley, she brings him to our childcare here. And our routine is that Kathy picks him up for a few hours until Haley has done work. Anyway, what, what happens is he often brings uh, a craft. And, and he'll say to Kathy, Grammy, I make. <laughs> I make. And we, we still love it. It's very cute. It might be a picture he's made, had cotton balls on it or some macaroni. You know the stuff. <laughs> ends up in a box somewhere or, well, gets thrown away. <laughs> but it's cute at the time, right? He made it and it mattered. But you know, when we take him to the park, he'll find a stick or a leaf and he'll seem fascinated with that thing until something else catches his interest. And, and even Avery understands the difference between something he has made and something he has discovered, When it comes to leadership in the church, I think it's important to understand that the church does not so much make leaders as the church does to discover and identify those that God has set apart. Now, I'm not saying, I am not saying that helping others to grow into maturity has no part of developing leaders. I'm not saying that. But I truly believe that it is more about discovery, that is to say, identifying those that God has set apart. And so my point, if we value multiplication, we must identify leaders. In our text, the, the, the writer of Acts, Luke, the same as the gospel writer, he simply reports, verse one, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers And he names them, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So what of these prophets and teachers? Prophets and teachers. Now, as we think about what that means, think not of distinct roles, one of a prophet and the other a teacher. Rather, think of the roles together. As we look at that word in the New Testament, the word prophet is used to refer both to those who would foretell future events and those who would foretell, that is to say, speak the inspired word of God authoritatively. So an example of a foretelling prophet in in, uh, the New Testament is uh, one Agabus, and we see his name a couple of times, Acts 11.28, Acts 21.10. In the first case, Agabus... uh, foretells of a worldwide famine. And later in Acts, he he specifically tells the Apostle Paul that he would be bound. He would be put into chains if he were to travel back to Jerusalem. Paul takes that and says, I'm going anyway. 
So he's got some information about the future. So that's one example. But, but most often when the word prophet is used in the New Testament, it's really describing one who is speaking the inspired, um, whose speaking is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then combined with this teaching role, to speak inspired words and combine that with teaching. Well, and that's what I believe is in view here in Acts 13. You see, before we have the written witness of the New Testament, God directly inspired apostles and prophets to declare his word. And some of what was declared has become our New Testament. The Apostle Paul, of course. And Saul in this text. He's called Saul here still. He's one of the major, most significant contributors to that inspired teaching. So what, what Luke is describing is these men who were prophet teachers. They were prophet teachers. You see, after the apostolic uh, age, after the apostolic uh, witness was written and circulated, it effectively became our New Testament. And that role in the local church was ultimately superseded by Pastors, that is to say, shepherd teachers. So how was it that these men, so named by Luke here, found their way into the leadership of the local church there in Antioch? Well, they heard the gospel like everyone else. But as they grew in their own knowledge of the scriptures, and as they grew in Christ-like character, they began to speak in such a way that others wanted to listen. Now, we're not told how it came to be that all of these uh, were identified. But we can simply understand that it was the authority of God's word in their mouths established these men as those called of God. A little background about the church in Antioch. That church was established as the result of, uh, in the, in near the beginning of the book of Acts, there was one, one of the deacons or the servants of the local church there in Jerusalem. He was proclaiming Christ boldly and he was accused by the religious leadership. Ultimately, he was persecuted and stoned to death. After that, the believers in Jerusalem just scattered they scattered. Most of those believers from the Jerusalem church spoke to Jews. They spoke to other Jews as they were scattered through the empire. But there were a few men who took the gospel to Gentiles, non-Jews. And so the church in Antioch was established. Now, after some time, that, uh, the, the Jerusalem church, uh, the leadership there, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. They sent him to Antioch to teach and to equip them. So it had become obvious to the Jerusalem church that Barnabas was one who had some ability with the word of God to, to declare the gospel, to, to speak of Christ and how, how he was the uh, fulfillment of the messianic promise in the, in, the, uh, in the scriptures, what we would call our Old Testament. So he ends up going to Antioch, but then Barnabas goes to Tarsus and he's going looking for Saul because he had been, become aware of Saul's conversion, of course. And when he finds Saul in Tarsus, he brings him back to Antioch. And they spend a full year ministering to the church there. So what's going on here? It was simply the fact that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit for teaching that set them and these other men listed apart. 
And isn't it interesting as we think about this, that Saul, who was present in Jerusalem the day that Stephen was killed, Saul, perhaps an instigator of that persecution, or at least passively approving of the persecution in Jerusalem. Now here he is, here he is with Barnabas teaching the people of the church at Antioch about Christ. You think about that. Nothing, nothing short of a miracle of grace could have brought that about. And you can read several accounts, uh, at least I think three accounts in the book of Acts where, where the Apostle Paul describes how he was converted, how God called him, arrested him on the road to Damascus and set him apart as a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles and their kings. So here in Antioch, you have these men, these prophet teachers recognized as leaders. Now, as we think about this, we just, we're looking at an example. We're looking at, at how it happened. What's the instruction then for, for the church today? What's the instruction for us? And I think simply it is this. We must identify the leaders that God has set apart. We must do that. That must be part of our DNA as a church. We must value that. Looking for the ones that God has set apart. Now, as we do that as a church, what are the criteria? What are the criteria for, for identifying those men? They are men of character and skill. Men of character and skill. Now, we can drill down into what this looks like in his letter to Timothy. The Apostle Paul lays out these qualifications, and he uses there the, the title overseer. And so when you see that in the Bible, and you see that in the New Testament, I want you to think of overseer as, as simply synonymous with elder, pastor, shepherd. They're, they're really different words representing different functions within the same office of the leader of a local church. I'm going to take you there to 1 Timothy 3. 2 through 7. So listen to this. As we think about identifying those who would lead us, Apostle Paul instructs Timothy, therefore, an overseer, pastor, shepherd, elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now there's a lot there, and I'm not going to take time to unpack each different aspect of the character requirements for the kind of men who would lead in the church. But as, as I read that over, I want you to keep something in mind here. These character qualifications are not meant to be exclusively for elders. They are simply character marks of someone who is mature in the Christian faith. So just because someone is not an elder does not mean that that individual should not seek to be of good reputation. Just because someone is not an elder doesn't mean that they should not be faithful in marriage or chaste in singleness. 
Just because they're not an elder does not mean that they should not be addicted to intoxicants, that they should not be gentle and reasonable in conversation, not, uh, that they should be hospitable and not greedy. No. These are for all believers to aspire to. And that's really the point for why the Apostle Paul says to Timothy that an elder should not be a recent convert. Those who are younger in the faith are still, they're still learning to, to resist temptation. They're still learning to choose the path of holiness. They're still learning to, to practice over, uh, obedience. And this is learned over time. Godly character is the evidence of Christian maturity. And therefore, therefore is a requirement for an elder. For identifying a leader in the church. And though those character qualifications is the pursuit of every disciple of Jesus, those who would serve as leaders must bear the mark of maturity. But I want to focus on one thing that the Apostle Paul buries in this list. Embedded in that list of qualifications is a single skill that not every mature disciple would necessarily possess. And we can see that in 1 Timothy 3.2 able to teach, able to teach. Now that teaching, as we talk about the qualifications, as we think about identifying leaders, as we hold this value of saying, those are the ones that God set apart. This is man God has set apart. Able to teach along with character. What does he mean by that? This teaching is specifically having to do with the word of God and its central theme of making Christ known. In the second letter to Timothy, the Apostle Paul gives us this, uh, well, gives Tim Timothy, and of course, by extension, he gives us this exhortation. He says to him, and this would apply to anyone who would, who would seek to be an overseer, a pastor, an elder. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. And all the Iwana kids are going to just recite this along with me. But it's not in the King James, so it's going to seem a little different. Here we go. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. It falls to every local church, and it is likewise incumbent upon us to identify those among us that the Lord is setting apart with the ability to teach and who have the character to lead. And as the church and as we identify leaders, pastors, elders, overseers, these elders, we are to continually seek out others that the Lord may be raising up. And as these are identified as having been gifted and set apart by the Lord, they are to be taught and tested. It's still a discovery process. We're not making them what God has called them to be. We're simply identifying what God has set them apart to do. But the Apostle Paul, again, instructs Timothy. These are called the pastoral epistles, by the way, because great instruction for the, for the pastoral office. 2 Timothy 2.2 Paul says to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so when it seems that these who we have been watching, these who we have been teaching, these who we've been testing, when it seems that they are ready for the responsibility, the church prays for wisdom to entrust these men with the stewardship 
and the responsibility to leave to lead. Now, some, some of the men serving among us, your elders, they came to us ready to lead. Others developed over time. Most of you haven't been around long enough. When, when Josh got here, fresh out of Bible school, fresh, as green as could be, well, he had some ministry experience in another church, but he was very young. When Bobby came here, he was a fairly new believer, when Davy came, Davy Lee, a naval officer, he was exploring his calling, but all of them grew in character and skill, and as they were tested, it just seemed obvious that the Holy Spirit had set them apart for the pastoral office, and they serve in those roles today. So what happens when we rightly identify those men that the Lord has called to lead, those that the Lord has called to shepherd his flock? Again, we go to the Apostle Paul, and this time in the in his letter to the Ephesians, he tells what happens. Giving credit to the Lord, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and here's what we're talking about right now, the shepherds and teachers, for what purpose? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see, when we identify those that God is raising up, when we identify the leaders that he is preparing, it results in more ministry. Not the elders doing the ministry alone, but the equipping of the church to do the ministry. And that ministry leads us to the unity of faith and maturity. If we value multiplication, we must identify leaders. Second, if we value multiplication, we must pray missionally, pray missionally. Now, I've got to admit that, and Kathy will definitely attest to this, that there are times that I'm easily distracted um, at home. I'll start some kind of task, and I might go into the garage looking for some tool, and then something else gets my attention, and before you know it, I've neglected the primary task that I was set out to do. We have a, a word for that. It's called puttering. I don't know if you ever use that word, but when you're puttering around the house, you're, you're kind of doing things, but it's not highly focused. You're, well, I did this and I did that. It's puttering. Um, I think it's true in the church in some respects. Uh, as a church, we, we enjoy the blessing of being part of the family of God. We, we enjoy the fellowship. We, the, we, we talk about and anticipate the return of Christ. But we might get distracted and lose sight of the fact that together we have been entrusted with this responsibility of a continuing witness to the world that there is salvation in Christ alone. And I dare say, perhaps at times we are puttering. That's not an accusation against you because I'm among you and I risk that too, taking my eyes off the goal. And I think it shows up in our prayers. Sometimes our prayers are more about our comfort and our protection and our well-being in this world, more about those things than fulfilling the mission that Jesus called us to as his ambassadors. Now, as we come back to the church in Antioch, I'm confident that they made a habit of praying for one another. I, I, I don't doubt that. 
praying for temporal needs, praying, praying for what's going on now. That's not wrong. But Luke records for us that they had a mission mindset. While they were worshiping, verse 2 in Acts chapter 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, more people needed to know about Jesus as Savior. And as a result of their worship and prayer together, the church in Antioch knew that the Spirit had marked two among them to carry the gospel to places unreached. Now, if we think about how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, when Jesus' disciples approached him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, what did Jesus say to them? He said, pray this way. The first petition that Jesus said, hallowed be your name. Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So it's a petition. God, cause your name to be regarded as holy. But that second petition, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if we just pause there, and I know we take this as a model prayer. Many of us use it as a kind of a, a template. Maybe sometimes we forget to come back to it. So how quickly, and I know this about my own prayers, how quickly do I launch into temporal things? Healing, comfort, provision. Of course, Jesus says we're to pray those things, but that's not first in his list. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to come? Well, it means that the rule of Jesus in the hearts of people is realized. It has a future uh, realization, of course, when Jesus, in his second advent, comes back. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But, but his kingdom now means that he rules in our hearts and that he rules in more and more and more hearts and that more and more subjects are brought under his kingly, benevolent, merciful rule. And it means, for the kingdom of God to come, it means that the people of God, we, we who now bow the knee to Christ in repentance and faith, we wait for the day of Jesus' return by, by proclaiming him as king now. It's the heart that Jesus demonstrated when he looked over the city of Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember the occasion. Matthew chapter 9. It's one of my favorite sections about telling us Jesus' ministry in his heart. I'll read it for us. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And he gives this instruction, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus taught his disciples to pray missionally. Because of Jesus' compassion for the people, he urged his disciples to pray that God would send workers. I wonder, well, I'm confronted by it, of course. Do I pray like that? Do you pray like that? Do we pray?
pray like that? Do we pray that God would use us to speak his good news to the unbelieving? Do we, do we fervently ask him to rearrange our own priorities, to provide us with the resources, to, to grip our own hearts with the compassion that Jesus had for the lost. Listen, look around you, not in this room, but think about the people around you, the people at work, the people on your street. They are harassed and helpless, and they are lost. And I don't know, especially during these pandemic times, I don't know what it takes to get the gospel to them. But I do know that we need to pray. Because I know how weak I am, and I suspect you feel the same way. I know that I lack the compassion of Jesus, and I know that I cannot save a single soul. But I do know, I do know when the gospel is faithfully proclaimed and it reaches the ears of the ones that the Holy Spirit has set apart, then the miracle happens. Because, as Paul says in Romans 1, 16, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes is the gospel. So brothers and sisters, we, we pray. We ought to pray. If we value multiplication, we ought to pray for people that can faithfully speak the gospel. For men among us who, who study the scriptures, who can lead others and teach others, who, who understand how to apply the Bible, who know the difference between sound doctrine and heresy. Why? Why? Because souls are at stake, your soul, and those that are yet to believe. Now, you probably don't need this reminder, but I'm going to remind you anyway what we're doing here. We have, we have the message of good news. We have the gospel. It's in the scriptures. It's what we are to proclaim. That message, that the Son of God became a man, Jesus was born of Mary in Bethlehem. He was the fulfillment of thousands of years of expectation in the scriptures from Genesis to Malachi. He actually lived on the earth, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. He was crucified and buried and in such a glorious way, God the Father counted that death on that cross as full payment for our sin. That sin that would condemn us and relegate us to an eternity separated from God, Jesus bore the full wrath of God for our sin, for all who look to him in faith. And on the third day, Jesus emerged from that tomb and he showed himself to many and after some days, he ascended to the Father's right hand to be enthroned where he now sits to intercede for us, his people. Now, I know I need to hear this message all the time. And listen, if you're here for the first time, I want you to know our thinking about you as you walked in this, this door, our primary concern for you is that you know this. And if you already know this, our primary concern is for you to grow in this knowledge. And so we say this all the time. If we value multiplication, like the church in Antioch, we pray missionally. 
and expect that God is going to answer for his own glory. Well, third, if we value multiplication, we must send, send enthusiastically. Now, uh, it it seems silly now, but I, I do well remember when we brought our children to school for the first time when they were young, there was a lot of emotion because we're letting go a little bit. And uh, some of you parents haven't done that yet, but the first time to preschool, there's tears. <laughs> Unless they've been holy terrors in your house, you go, oh, somebody else can have them for a little while. But you know what? For the most part, it's, uh, it's, like a little, it's emotion-filled. And that feeling, it comes back and it intensifies with every subsequent major milestone. Off to college, tears. Marriage, Tears. And we get it, the job of parents is is to prepare our children to be sent off into the world. We don't hang on to them forever, right? Sending your kids out is hard, hard to do, but it's the right thing. It's the right thing. It's just the way of the world. You had those little babies, not to keep them forever. Multiplication is built in, isn't it? Well, it's also true that sending out leaders from the church is hard, but it is the right thing to do. And I want you to imagine being a member of that church in Antioch. There are these men who have labored among you, and one stands out, Saul. And I'm guessing he was already well known to be very gifted. And then there's Barnabas, whose generosity and his encouraging spirit is known to all. And I don't doubt that Saul had already expressed in some measure his desire to bring the gospel to other places, but I can hear, I can hear the opposition well, Saul, Saul, God has used you in such a, a great way here. You, you've helped us grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus. You must not go. We need you here. But what happened? The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So matter of fact, I'm sure that there were tears. I'm sure that there was agony and longing, but I'm sure it was mixed with joy for the sake of the gospel. And for the sake of the gospel, brothers and sisters, church family, we must be willing and ready to send out those that the Lord is calling to other places, whether that's across town or across the country, or to the other side of the world. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Over a year ago, we began to talk about how we might partner with another church in the Omaha area. And that church was limping, and they needed to be restored to health. A church that needed a pastor to shepherd them. And before we sent Davy Lee, one of our own pastoral team members, before we sent him to Sender Baptist with our prayers, and financial support, there was prayer. And I remember it. Some expressed concerns. We felt it. We love Davy. We need him here. He's so talented that the timing is not great. Who will step in to fill his responsibilities? We'll miss him. Oh, there were many, many reasons for him not to go, but it became clear to the elders, and it was affirmed by the members to send him. And even though it was hard, though it was painful in many ways, I've said before, and I'll say it again, I think it's one of the best things we've ever done as a church. 
I think it was our Antioch moment. That's what I think of it. And I want us to have more Antioch moments. This morning, I think, Josh, did you have a go team meeting? Well, if you're not aware of that, what's the purpose of that? We, we want to raise awareness about our missionary partners, but not only for the sake of helping you all to know what's going on in other parts of the world through those we support with finances and prayer, but, but we want to stoke it within you because maybe, maybe God is gripping your heart to go, maybe on a short-term mission trip, or maybe, maybe, Spend your life somewhere. And I'll say this right now that there, I won't name them, there's some students who are exploring the missionary calling. And Josh is working with them to find ways of ensuring that they can explore that calling by testing and, and learning ministry skills. We want to be zealous goers and encourage those among us by being zealous senders. Josh, pre Josh preached a sermon on that some time ago. Look that one up. I don't know when it was, but it was a great one. <laughs> If we value multiplication, like the church at Antioch, we must be pre prepared to send enthusiastically for the sake of the gospel. As I wrap this up, Jesus gave the definitive statement on multiplication when he said this, Matthew 28. I'm sure you're surprised I haven't quoted this yet, but here we are. Jesus said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. When we identify those men that the Lord has set apart, more and more people can be equipped for ministry and grow to maturity in faith. When we pray missionally, when we pray missionally, the Lord will give us compassion for others and we will be eager for them to know Christ. And when we send out enthusiastically, we complete the circle so that more will be identified. More will pray missionally and more will be sent. That's the math. That's multiplication. And in all of this, Jesus said, I'll be with you to the end of the age. We value the multiplication of disciples, leaders, and ministries. Jesus will be with us. Count on it. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we know um, you have called us to this task. This is the kind of church we want to be. And Lord, um, we are weak to do it. We do not have power in our own strength, so we ask that you would uh, just grip our hearts, cause us to do the very thing that we ought to do by your grace. Strengthen us. Open our eyes to see the opportunity. Raise up men among us who are serving, who are ready to serve. And Lord, give us, um, give us success as you define it, not as the world defines it, but give us success as you define it making Christ known to the ends of the earth. We do pray all of these things for the glory of Jesus.